Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Welcome to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. This month, as we pause to honor Black history makers uh, the world over, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Carla Hayden, who is currently serving as the 14th Librarian of Congress. As you know, Dr. Hayden, it's a real pleasure for me to have you here, and not just because you are a history maker in your own right, uh, but you happen to be making history in a profession that has been near and dear to me for a long, long time. Uh, my late wife of 58 years was a librarian, uh, and she taught me a lot of sensitivities about librarians. Now, her work was mostly uh, with the United States Navy and the Naval Hospital uh, down in Charleston and uh, uh, the Veterans Administration Hospital. But I learned something about uh, uh, being a librarian. Not only did you keep up with the, all of the necessary research into issues, but sharing that with so many people, uh, she developed a certain expertise that I did not have. Uh, she could always tell me uh, who was going to win uh, the election <laughs> and who would lose. And it was unfortunate, but on uh, one occasion at breakfast, she told me one morning, I think you're running a good campaign. I want you to keep on doing it, but don't get your hopes up because you're not going to win this race. Uh, I, I learned from that to really follow the advice of librarians. Uh, and so when I got to meet you uh, way back when Barack Obama uh, first uh, named you to be the librarian of Congress, I, uh, I thought I was meeting uh, another sage, uh, not just history maker. And I wanna thank you for all that you've met uh, to me personally and to the people here on the Hill. Just so the listeners would know a little bit about you, I think uh, you were sworn in on September 14th, I believe, 2016. Yes. To be the Librarian of Congress. But before that time, you'd made your, a name for yourself uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. And I know a little bit about the inner Pratt libraries there, visiting them. Uh, when I used to come up and spend uh, weeks with an 
aunt that lived in Baltimore. Uh, so you uh, really got to be known there and uh, became sort of a, uh, not just history maker there because uh, uh, you made a history in the profession coming from there. If my memory serves, you were uh, the American, the first African-American uh, to receive Library, Library Journal's Librarian of the Year Award in, uh, because of your tremendous work. And uh, we're gonna talk about that a little bit, but I want you to just share with our listeners here a little bit about what it means to you uh, to have, uh, uh, let's just say, broken through uh, this particular <laughs> glass ceiling. Well, thank you, Congressman, for having me on. And I hope that there, your one time that your wife was wrong, <laughs> that you won the election. <laughs> Librarians do a lot of research. And that's what it's meant to me as a woman, to be the first woman to be the Librarian of Congress since 1802 in a profession that's called the feminized profession, where 85 to 90% of the people who work in libraries are female, but the top management doesn't reflect that at all. And so that was something as a librarian, a career librarian to be the first woman, but what really meant and continues to mean so much to me is the fact that I'm an African-American and the first African-American to be a librarian of Congress. And in fact, that resonated so much because people who looked like me <laughs> uh, were denied the right by law to learn to read. And then to become the librarian of the largest library in the world was poetic justice, I think. Absolutely. Um, it reminds me a little bit, uh, uh, Ron McNair, as you know, who lost his life from the Challenger, uh, grew up in the little town of Lake City. South Carolina, that's in my congressional district. And Ron and I uh, talked one time about his growing up and what it meant to him to be in the astronauts corps. And aside from the fact that historically uh, blacks were not allowed uh, an education, even when they were allowed some education, Ron told me about his, his experience of not being allowed to uh, attend the library yes. in his little hometown. And we've heard stories like that. Marion Wright Elderman was denied use of the library in her hometown. Uh, and of course, that library that she was uh, kept out of now bears her name. Yes. Uh, and that's the kind of poetic justice you get out of all of this. But let's talk about some of the things you've done under your leadership there. Uh, as the Librarian of Congress, um, uh, the Of the People Initiative, uh, which I think uh, uh, promotes uh, efforts on behalf of people of color. Tell us a little bit about that. The Of the People Widening the Path uh, grant is the largest grant that the Library of Congress has received from a foundation. And it was a grant from the Andrew Mellon Foundation that is now headed up by Elizabeth Alexander, the poet, the educator, uh, really someone who is taking the Mellon Foundation into the future. And this grant, $15 million, 
allows the Library of Congress to give grants to community groups and organizations to document their history, special grants for people who are working in communities and some of them are young and young at heart with the digital collecting and digital types of materials and then actual paid, and I love this, be able to say paid scholarships and internships to students in HBCUs to pursue careers and get introduced to archiving and librarianship. And that aspect is something that's dear to my heart because so often we ask students to do things and we are not contributing to what they need going and being in college. So being able to give paid internships was important. Well, that's very, very important. You're right, paid internships. You know, a lot of people can afford to be interns, you know, uh, at no cost. Uh, there are, uh, I have a lot of them want the experience, like to have the experience, but uh, or in no need of needing to make a living, just to get experience. A lot of very gifted young people uh, do not have the wherewithal. Uh, to get these internships uh, if they cannot uh, have means to support themselves. So that's a great, great program. I'm glad to see that you got it uh, going. Now, a lot of libraries around the country are going to be getting these grants, but I'm particularly interested in the little sketch you just showed me uh, before we started the program a sketch uh, of Mary McLeod Bethune at a very young age. Uh, tell me about that sketch. This is a sketch from a collection at the Smithsonian by Weinhold Reese, 1925. And Mary McLeod Bethune is a particular role model for me, being an educator and someone that really made a difference in terms of education. And I understand that you also are, are an admirer of hers and that there will be a statue of her in the Capitol. And That's I quite true. That's quite true. That Mary McLeod Bethune was born in a little town of Maysville, uh, South Carolina, just a, about eight, 10 miles from my hometown. Uh, my mother was a, a statistician who made me learn everything in the world about Mary McLeod Bethune uh, when I was growing up. Uh, of course, Maysville is just uh, a few miles from the little town of Lake City that we talked about earlier. Uh, she's the um, uh, 15th child uh, in her family, the first one uh, to get a college education. And she's going to be, her statue is coming here to the Capitol. Uh, you know, the, the speaker gets to determine where the statue there will be. I'm hoping she'll put it in Statuary Hall across from Rosa Parks. Um. Rosa Parks is already there. But the unique thing about this statue is that it's being sent up here by a state. All states get to put two statues in the Capitol. The states make that selection. This is the first time that a person of color will have uh, a likeness sent to the Capitol 
by a state. And so the state of Florida is sending her uh, because uh, she was, uh, she moved to Florida uh, after leaving Georgia and South Carolina and found what we now know as Bethune Cookman College. Uh, and Florida is honoring her in this way. Now, something else happened up here about someone else that uh, you uh, may be a little bit familiar with, Joseph Rainey. Uh, we just uh, dedicated a room last week here in the Capitol to Joseph Rennie, who was sworn into Congress uh, December 12th, uh, 1870, becoming the first person, first black person right. uh, to be elected to Congress. Now I have to, this is Black History Month and we want to get it right. So I want all my listeners to know he was not the first one to serve, but he was the first elected one. Uh, there was an African-American senator before him, but during those days, the Senate was not elected. Senators uh, were sent up here by their legislator. So uh, he was the first one to be elected uh, 150 years ago. Uh, is there much in the Library of Congress about Joseph Rennie? I'm so pleased that you mentioned that and the distinction with being elected and sent uh, right. is one that's very important because on the Library of Congress's website, and we call it our digital front door, there's so many collections. And if people will go on to loc.gov and put up and put in Joseph Rainey, you will see actual photographs of him in all of his, I'd like to say, majesty <laughs> and dignity. Uh, and he was very similar to Frederick Douglass in understanding in African-Americans at that time, the power of photography to see the real image. There are also renderings of him and other African-American members of Congress, but the power is seeing his actual photograph. And then you, of course, can find other materials, but to, <clears throat> I encourage people to get on that website because you'll also see Rosa Parks, the exhibit about Rosa Parks that is now uh, at the library and you can come in person to see it, but other collections. So we're very pleased to be able to have that, those photographs of him in real time too. And that aspect of being able to see that became even more important for all libraries during the COVID-19 pandemic. Libraries were the only access point for so many people. Yeah, uh, that's quite true. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the so-called, uh, what's called digital front door. Because, you know, uh, often when I go around, people talk about me being the uh, first African-American to represent South Carolina Congress. That's not true. I'm the ninth. Uh, of course, Joseph Rennie was from Georgetown, South Carolina. And I now represent some of the same uh, parts of South Carolina that he uh, represented. He was the first, and then he was followed by seven others. Uh, so I'm now writing another book and I'm, my working title for the book is 
Before I was first, there were eight. Uh, and uh, among those eight, of course, Robert Smalls, yes. who met and worked with Frederick Douglass uh, to recruit Blacks in the Civil War. Uh, a lot of people don't know about Robert Smalls because he came back to South Carolina to do his work. Uh, of course, Frederick Douglass was here in Washington, up in Rochester, New York. And so people got to know about him. But uh, I want you to say it again, LOC.gov. LOC.gov, and you can put in Mr. Smalls and definitely put in Frederick Douglass. That's one of the largest collections that the Library of Congress has, Frederick Douglass's collection. All of the drafts of his speeches and his writings and everything in his own hand. And that's what's so important to see uh, the, the power of his writing. And you can almost feel it through the paper uh, when you see the emphasis he gives to certain words, like when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, killed, murdered. You yeah. see him emphasizing that in his own hand. Yeah, you know, um, I think it's so important. We talked a whole lot about uh, Black History, Black History Month and what it really means. In fact, I'm writing a piece now that I'm going to uh, publish in all of the uh, National Newspaper Publishers Associations, their uh, newspapers around the country, uh, dealing with the whole issue of what I'm calling critical racial facts. <laughs> uh, and uh, these things, I think, are very important to young people. Uh, and so I think that digital front door needs to be walked through uh, by and as many people as possible in order to really get a good understanding and a good feeling for what this month is all about, uh, which when I was growing up was only a week. Yes. Uh, did not become a uh, Black History Month until Gerald Ford made it so officially, though a lot of college campuses started celebrating the whole month of February uh, back in the 1960s, so I think 1976, when Gerald Ford made it official. Uh, and it's not about anything to make anybody feel uncomfortable. It's all about uh, getting people to know uh, much more about the facts of history and hopefully develop a better appreciation for who and what we are today and what we can be going forward. And that's the part about history. There's hope in history and it never stops. And Carter G. Woodson, the Library of Congress has his paper, started it to uncover hidden history. People didn't know about a lot of the history and he picked February not because there's some people even joke about it. Oh, it's the shortest month. And it was picked for that. He picked it because of the two birthdays, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln's. That's why he picked that time frame. And when you think about all of the history there is to know, um, the, the Tulsa race riots, the Elaine riots in Arkansas, that were some of the bloodiest, to be able to go online, to read what, uh, to see, for instance, and this was something, Congressman, that in my role, I was so 
really humbled to be able to work with Dr. Lonnie Bunch, who is the now the secretary of the Smithsonian, the first African-American. He's the 14th secretary and the 14th Librarian of Congress. We went together and pooled our resources to purchase the first known photograph of Harriet Tubman so that it could stay in public hands. And you can go on both of our websites and download it and look at it and see her in her glory, right? You're used to seeing the photos of her older woman and hunched over, but when you see that photo of her, you understand how she did what she did and the pride that you should have in her. So I hope that your listeners will be encouraged to just go on the websites and look at the Alvin Ailey collection, Gordon Parks, Ralph Ellison. The NAACP collection is the most used collection at the Library of Congress. It's oh, that's absolutely great. I did not realize that. That's yes. great. And, and it's, it's an so ongoing, it's an ongoing collection. Good. So we work with them quite closely. The Legal Defense Fund is there, Thurgood Marshall's papers are there, Bayard Rustin's papers, uh, A. Philip Randolph, the Sleeping Car, uh, Car Porters. All of these things are there to be discovered. That's great. And I, I you know, I, I had not planned to, but I think I'm going to put in this piece. Uh, call upon people to really walk through that digital front door walk uh, through. Uh, and make it their uh, jobs to live black history all year through. And um, a lot of people, I think, uh, will visit this if they really uh, knew uh, that it was there and how to use it. Now, I'm not saying I know how to do it. <laughs> Just my, keep on. Maybe uh, I get my grandchildren to show me. Uh, but I, I look forward to walking through that door myself as often as I possibly can. And Congressman, there's help on that website. Ask a librarian. <laughs> it's Great. actually something you could push and, and you will be in direct contact with a librarian. <laughs> Very good. I'll do that. Uh, <laughs> let me, uh, uh, before I ask you about uh, uh, the decision you made during the Freddie Gray incident, I want you to share uh, with my listeners what went into your thinking when you uh, did not uh, close down that library when all that was going on. Uh, I think it's something my listeners ought to know. But I want to reiterate something you just said, because I get a little bit uh, miffed sometimes and uh, I hear people scornfully say, they gave us the shortest month of the year for Black History Month. That's absolutely not true. We ought not to be part of perpetuating untruths. Uh, it was uh, Carter G. Woodson and the, uh, the Association of African-American Negro Life and History, what it, what it was back then. They established uh, Black History Week uh, during uh, a time when it could embrace both the birthdays yes. of Abraham Lincoln, February 12th, Frederick Douglass, February 14th. Now, the way the calendar is run, maybe sometimes in the 12th and the 14th would fall in different weeks, but more often than not, it would be in the same week. And they don't have to worry about that now 
since we celebrated the whole that's month. Right. So that's how that came about. And so it's best for us to know it as it really happened. No sinister activities here honoring yeah, right. two heroes uh, of African-Americans, Frederick Douglass and uh, Abraham Lincoln. Now, having got that real clear, <laughs> tell us a well, little bit. And that's important, sir, because it was also not designed to be just that time period to think about or learn about African-American history, Black history. It was to introduce people, to read it, to get you to think about it and keep going the entire year. It was a week and a month of celebration, but it was by no means that's the only time that you look at Black history. And so I wanted to put that one out too. Yeah, because that's great. Sometimes that, that, that gets lost. Like that's the only time you're supposed to think about Black history. And in Baltimore in 2015, uh, you mentioned going to the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore when you visited your aunt. And in Baltimore, the Enoch Pratt Free Library had a special place in the African-American community because it was one of the few library systems that actually in their charter said that the access would not be denied because of color, race and religion and color. And the people in the city, the African-American people in the city, including your colleague, Congressman Elijah Cummings, right. really felt strongly about what the Pratt Library did for them, and it was that lifeline for them. And that continued um, with a special uh, mural at the Pennsylvania Avenue branch, and that was at the epicenter of the unrest during the examination of Freddie Gray's murder. And then right on that corner, there's a two-story branch that had a mural, and still does, of a young African-American girl reading. And I remember when we put that up there, people were saying, oh, don't put that mural there. It's going to be defaced. It's going to be that. It's never been touched, including when people were seeing on national and world TV uh, the fire that took place right across from that library branch. Young men from the community stood in front of that branch to make sure that it wasn't harmed during all the burning car, all of that. And the night uh, that those things were going on, the library and their Melanie Townsend, a strong young woman called me and said, Dr. Hayden, we need to be open tomorrow because so many people depend on this library to get jobs, because it's the only place that people can get on computers to do their job applications just for everything. We've got to be open. And I said, okay. And one thing I've learned is that if you ask people to do things, you should be able to be there yourself. So I was there and we opened the doors the next morning and people were lined up and the one young man said, thank you so much. I needed to get my application in for a job. This is the only way I could do it. And two days later, he came back and he had an interview and he came back to tell us. And during that time, the library was the only place that had restrooms. So the media was coming in and doing things. They, 
the StoryCorps people came in to start taping people as things were going on, but also more importantly, it became a food distribution center because there were no stores open at all and a place where young people could have classes, teachers were coming in because everything was closed. So that really, I think, emphasized what libraries can be in communities. And so it's been very hard for libraries when they had to physically close during the pandemic, but they got creative, sir. That's great. I think that's a great story uh, for you to tell because, you know, uh, that tells you a little bit about how important uh, community in embracing the community uh, is to our efforts. Uh, that library was protected from everything that was going on around it yeah. because of the people in that community uh, had uh, the respect for it as an institution, not just a building, but as an institution oh. uh, to make sure that no harm come upon it. I probably should tell you that outside of the library that may have been in the school that I was in, the first non-school library I ever went in was the Interpract Library uh, up there in Baltimore, uh, because I was not allowed in the public library in my hometown of Sumter uh, when I was growing up. So um, uh, I, uh, I don't think I ever really told you that part of it. Oh. I, I told you I knew Baltimore a little bit. Uh, but that's so important, uh, these libraries. And that's why every chance I get, uh, I try to do what I can to help libraries, uh, not just because I got calibrated for 58 years and that's what I'll do, but because of my own experiences. So if, I want to thank you uh, for uh, sharing time with us today. And of course, uh, there's something uh, you would like to say in closing, uh, please do so. Well, I would just like to uh, quote one of my heroes, Frederick Douglass, when he said, once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. And there's a one paragraph in a book about reading and it's called Forbidden, it's in a chapter called Forbidden Reading. And on the front of it is a picture of a slave, a person who was a slave with a book. And the paragraph says, as slave owners, dictators, and other illicit holders of power have always known, an illiterate crowd is the easiest to rule. And if you cannot prevent people from learning to read, the next best recourse is to limit its scope. Well, that's great. My dad used to say all the time something much less poetic, but just it really had an effect on me. He used to insist upon us reading. You had to do a Bible verse uh, every morning uh, before breakfast. You had to share a public event every evening before going to bed, and which means we had to read the newspapers. Uh, and the Bible in order to carry out those responsibilities. But he used to say, read, son, read. He who does not read is no better off than one who cannot read. And so oh. that stayed with me uh, and is still with me. 
And I want to thank you uh, for being a history maker. I want to thank you for sharing history with so many of us. And I want to thank you for the friendship uh, that you've shown to me and uh, others here uh, in this body. As you probably know, my current office, where I'm sitting now, uh, we usually get the history of these offices when we occupy them. This office used to be the Library of Congress. <laughs> that I think you knew. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being thank here with so us. Much. Good luck. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.